Jesus is in the business of transforming lives. It doesn't matter which end of the political spectrum you happen to be on. You come into contact with Jesus and He transforms your life. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you here this morning. Thank you for coming out in the cold. The winter gets long, doesn't it? <laughs> but we're looking for spring. Each day we're getting a, a day closer, and that's a good thing. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 3. We are in the third chapter of Mark today. And we're thinking about the calling of the twelve. The public ministry of Jesus began sometime early in the spring of 29 A.D., about three and a half years before his death at Passover in 33. Now that accounts for all four Passovers that are in or mentioned in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus begins his ministry before Passover number one, and it continues through two and three and culminates in his death and resurrection at the fourth Passover. So it's a, a period of about three and a half years. And though we're not very many chapters into Mark, we're probably a year to a year and a half into the public ministry. Jesus did not begin his public ministry by calling his 12 apostles. Uh, these guys were with him for a while. And in the early days of his ministry, there was a lot of, of fluidity in people coming and going and hanging out with Jesus for a while and going away. And Jesus would make some ministry trips. We saw one around the area of Galilee. And, and he went other places as well. And about a year to a year and a half into the process, we come to Mark chapter 3, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13, where Jesus is going to choose now some men to call around himself to be with him for the long period of time and to be able to carry the message that Jesus himself had begun to preach. We saw that in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. You remember we're, we're working on that. We're memorizing that. Where Jesus comes and He says that the time is fulfilled. The time that has been promised in the Old Testament. God is working. He's working according to His calendar and His purposes. And now the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is right at hand. We're on the threshold of it. So, repent. Repent means to change your thinking. To confess your sin. To realize that the way you've been going is not the way that's pleasing to God. Repent. Turn around. Go the other way. And believe in the Gospel, the good news. And so, Jesus now, He's been preaching this, and that's kind of the summary message that He's been sharing. He's been preaching this for a year and a half. And now it's time to choose those men who would associate themselves with Jesus from that day all the way up to the day of His crucifixion. And they would be with Him for that entire time. And they would be the ones who would carry the message of repentance and the coming kingdom to those around the world after Jesus was gone. Now that's what's in Jesus' thinking. That's what's in His mind. I don't think that was quite in the mind of all of His disciples. They were looking forward to the kingdom of God appearing right then where this great Messiah would drive out the Romans and make Israel a great nation and in fact the greatest nation on the face of the earth. They were looking for those things. 
because those things had been promised to them in the Old Testament. The problem was they were just looking at some of the promises. They weren't looking at everything that God had revealed about this Messiah. That's a problem that you and I have today, isn't it? When we read our Bibles, we like to cherry pick. <laughs> we like to get those things that really look good to us and really encourage us in this moment. And, and we, like to, uh, we like to say, God is love. And we like to forget that God is also righteous and holy and just and a judge. One who is jealous for his own reputation. We kind of... We kind of like to set those things aside and we don't want to look at those things. We want, to, we want to look at just the one or two characteristics about God that we really like. And what happens is when we do that, we have a flawed view of God. And we develop in our minds a God who is not existing in the pages of Scripture. It's a false God. We need to take the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. The things that we like, the things that kind of bother us a little bit, the things that we understand, the things that maybe we don't fully understand. We need to take the whole Word of God because the whole thing is inspired. The whole thing is inerrant. The whole thing is God's communication of Himself to us. And apart from all that God has given us here, we're not going to know the truth about God, ourselves, and the world that we live in. So when Jesus is calling these men to Himself, He's calling them to embrace the whole counsel of God and to be equipped and prepared to share that with the world once he's gone. So as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we can behold wondrous things out of your Word. Help us, Father, to accept the whole counsel of God and not just to pick and choose the things that we might like, because that will lead us down the wrong road. Help us, Father, to wrestle with those things that we may not understand and to come to an understanding of them and to, to seek that understanding from Your Word. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on You and to see how You are working in this world and what You're accomplishing. Help us, Father, to be convinced of these things so that we can share them with the people around us. Thank You, Lord, for all that You're doing in our lives. And we pray these things in Your precious name. Amen. The first followers in Mark's Gospel were Simon, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. We, we've seen these guys already in the pages of Scripture. And in, in the early days... Jesus' ministry is kind of centered around the area of Capernaum. That's where most of the things are happening. And then from there, spreading out into northern Galilee along the edges of the Sea of Galilee, that's kind of where the, the focus has been thus far. It's going to expand, it's going to grow and, and encompass even portions of that world that were Gentile areas as well. Right now it's primarily located in the territories belonging to Israel. We've seen Jesus cast out a demon from a man in the Capernaum synagogue. We've seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law uh, that very same day. And then he healed many uh, that evening there in Capernaum who had heard about what happened in the synagogue, who must have heard about what happened to Peter's mother-in-law, and a whole bunch of people from all over the town came to Jesus that evening, and many were healed. 
He went on a biblical preaching tour around Galilee. He cleansed a leper. He healed a paralyzed man and forgave his sins. He's already entered into conflicts with the Pharisees. They don't like him. And uh, they got into a little tiff over who can forgive sins but God. And Jesus said, you know, rise, take up your mat, which is easier to do. Say your sins are forgiven, which of course nobody can see. Or to say to this guy that's paralyzed, get up, take your mat and go home. Well, if Jesus would have been a fraud, he would have been immediately exposed. But the guy got up, took up his mat, walked out the door. Guess what? If Jesus can do that, he can forgive sins too. If he can do the things that we see, he can do the things that we can't see. Jesus has been really drawing a sharp line in the sand. So much so that we saw last time, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. We talked about the conflict that truth always produces. Always produces. When we are confronted with the truth, we will either admit the truth and submit to it, confessing our sin, or we'll try to ignore it and make it go away and suppress it. And if we can't suppress it and ignore it, then we have to eliminate it. And that's always the way it is with truth. Truth is very, very convicting. And so many of the folks there didn't want to hear it. So now, Jesus, knowing that things are moving according to plan, chooses His twelve apostles. These were ordinary guys. They were working class. Many of them were probably in their twenties. Uh, some of them were married. Some of them were in business for themselves. Some had uh, some political aspirations, I think. None of them had a, what we would call a secondary or post-high school education. They, they were educated men. They were wise people, but, but they weren't of the upper crusty class, you know, that uh, uh, everybody seems to think is, is where great leaders come from that's quite honestly seldom the case usually it's from the the ordinary group of people that god chooses his best workers matthew probably was the most educated among them because he would have had to have been very familiar with uh, you know basic mathematics and so forth and he would have been well versed in Latin because official communications from Rome, which he was working for, would have been in Latin. Uh, he would have known the, the Greek language. He would have known Aramaic, which was commonly spoken among his own people. But remember, Matthew was a traitor because he was a Jew working for Rome. He would have been an educated man. He would have known what was going on uh, in, in the world. But the others, yeah, they were fishermen some of them we don't even really know what they did as an occupation but when they came in contact with jesus their world changed significantly let's think about these guys they're listed here for us pick up the story in uh, verse 13 he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted and they came to him if we check out the Gospel of Luke, it gives us a little bit more detail. This event of choosing the disciples occurs after Jesus spends a night in prayer. He's up there on the mountain. He's up near Capernaum somewhere. We don't know exactly which mountain this might have been. and It may not have been a mountain like we think of a mountain. It may have been just kind of a secluded, hilly area, something that you know, Jesus could get away from the crowds, be a little on his own. And he's there, and he's spending the night in prayer. Now, I wonder what he prayed about. <laughs> Can you guess? He's praying about his ministry. He's praying about the next thing that will happen. He's praying about what these men will be and who these men will be. Never forget that Jesus was 100% human 
Have you ever prayed about a decision that you had to make? I hope so. I hope that you pray about every decision that you have to make. Because we don't know, do we? We, we, we can't see the future. We don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't know people. And, and we can look at somebody and we can think, wow, kind of like Samuel back there when God said, go anoint a king. He looked at um, Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and said, oh, this has got to be the guy. And the Spirit of God says to Samuel, sit down. He's not the one. Oh, you're kidding. I mean, look, he's a handsome guy. He's tall. He's strong. He's smart. He's got a charisma about him. Sit down, Samuel. He's not the one. They got through all the brothers and the Spirit of God didn't indicate any of them. And Samuel says, is this it? Well, there's little David out there playing on his harp, you know, watching the sheep. He's just a young boy, but go get him. We're not going to sit down until he comes. And sure enough, he was the one. He was the one that God had chosen. Jesus is spending this night in prayer, seeking the Father's will. And it is from that that then this choice of 12 men comes. Look at the guys that He chooses. He appointed 12 that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. The first, We're going to come back to that. But the first guy he chooses is a fellow named Simon. Simon, also known as Peter, that's his Greek name, or Cephas, that's his Aramaic name, it means a stone. Peter was kind of the leader of the group. He's one of those guys that steps forward no matter what. Whether he knows what he's doing or not, he's going to lead the pack. And that's Peter. And we see sometimes that works very well for Peter. On one occasion, when they were all gathered together, Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter jumps up and he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, good job, Peter. But flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. Peter was that kind of guy. He was going to speak up. He was, he was going to take the lead. But he wasn't the only one that Jesus chose. There was also James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he, that's Jesus, gave the nickname, a, a little nickname here, Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now some have suggested that, well, they really were... Jesus was kind of mentioning their dad, Zebedee, the guy that was in the boat, you know, when, when they left the boat. And he must have had some things to say about his two sons just walking off to follow Jesus. And, and maybe, maybe he, they were his sons and the sons of Zebedee, the, the thunderer, you know. Or maybe it was they themselves who were pretty brash because later on we're going to see that they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, these group of people here, they don't want to accept you. Shall we call down fire from heaven like Elijah? Let's give them a real blast, you know. Maybe, maybe they had a heart that was pretty short-fused and they were ready. I don't know. <laughs> but some quality was in these guys and Jesus gave them this nickname. James was going to be the very first martyr among the twelve. John was going to live to his 90s. He was probably the youngest one of the disciples. And he would live into his 90s. And he would die in exile. Well, he would be in exile. He eventually got off the island of Patmos, got back to Ephesus and died there. But it wasn't very long after he got released that, that he died. So, I don't know why, specifically, Jesus gave them this nickname, but that's what they were known as, the Sons of Thunder. He goes on, there's Philip, or excuse me, Andrew, I almost missed Andrew. Andrew was a fisherman. 
Andrew was the brother of Peter, and it was Andrew who met Jesus first and then went to get his older brother and say, come on, we found the Messiah. And the other place that we see Andrew in a prominent position is that he is bringing some Greeks to Jesus. Andrew seems to be one of those guys that is constantly bringing others to Jesus. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who wrote a book about the different kinds of people, and one of them was a, a connector. Andrew would have been a connector. He was a guy that he saw Jesus, and he saw this guy over here, and this guy over here needed Jesus, and he brought him over. And he made those connections. Some of you might be like that. You, you might not be bold and, and talk about Jesus yourself, but you can get somebody who's in need connected with somebody who can talk about Jesus. The church needs those kinds of folks. Ones that are bringing people all the time. Just bringing people with them. Hey, come on. I know somebody that you need to know. And, and they, they bring people to Christ. Maybe that was a quality that Andrew had. James, he was a fisherman. John, he was a fisherman, both the sons of thunder. Philip. Philip was from Bethesda. That was the original town of Peter and Andrew. That's apparently where they grew up. Um, and they got to Capernaum at some point, and that was where the family fishing business was. Philip was a man who knew the Old Testament. Because when Philip goes to find Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, he says, we found the one that Moses and the prophets spoke of. He was a man who knew the Scriptures. He recognized in Jesus something that caused him to look back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, for example, where he says, God's going to raise up another prophet like me. You listen to him. And so Nathaniel or um, Philip says, This is the guy. This Jesus is the one that Moses spoke about. These fellows were, were open to what God was doing. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, he's known by both names, he was a fisherman. And Nathaniel, I think, was kind of a contemplative sort of fellow. When Philip found him, he was sitting out under the fig tree. Now that seems like an odd thing to happen, but it was uh, kind of a common thing when you had a little time and you wanted to meditate about things, you'd go out and you'd sit under a tree. And I think uh, Nathaniel here, or Bartholomew, was out there thinking about this guy, Jesus. They're all coming from the same general area, except for Judas Iscariot. He comes from the south. We'll talk about him in a minute. But they're all coming from that area of Galilee, northern Galilee, the very same area where Jesus had been doing some itinerant preaching. And they'd all heard about the various miracles that Jesus had done. Mark doesn't mention a lot of them. If you look in the Gospel of John, I mean, he's raised the, the guy, the, the son of the widow of, of Nain. Uh, he's turned water into wine. He's done all kinds of stuff that Mark doesn't mention. But remember, Mark is in a hurry. He's, he's not going to tell you the whole story. He's going to tell you highlights and get you to the point. And Nathaniel has been hearing all this stuff. And I think he's out there sitting under the fig tree. And, uh, Philip comes up to him and says, hey, we found the one that uh, the Old Testament talks about, that Moses talks about. Nathaniel looks up and says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Because Philip addressed him as Jesus of Nazareth. But was that Jesus' town of origin? Is that where he was born? No, he was born in Bethlehem, wasn't he? 
He was born in the city of David. Did his parents, his mother, come from the northern tribes? No, no, no. She was from the tribe of Judah. How about his foster father, Joseph? Did he come from the northern tribes? No, no, no. He was from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of David. In fact, both uh, both, uh, Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. Did these guys know that right away? Did they know that at this point? I don't think so. But Nathaniel is out there sitting under the fig tree thinking about what's going on here, trying to evaluate, thinking about Jesus and who he's claiming to be. And he says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And Philip says, well, come on, take a look. Come and see. And he does. There was Matthew, or Levi. We talked about him in this gospel. He was a man that you wouldn't have thought would be interested in Jesus. Because Jesus, putting himself forward as the Messiah, was the opponent of Rome. And Matthew worked for Rome. And to follow Jesus would get him in trouble with Rome. You wouldn't expect Matthew to give up a cushy government job, would you? To follow Jesus. But that's exactly what he did. And then you have a fellow named Thomas. Notice here in uh, verse 18, Thomas. Other places he's called Didymus, which means the twin. I don't know who his twin brother was, if his twin brother was a follower of Christ at all or not. It wasn't just these 12, by the way. Remember, we we saw up there, it says he called to them. Out of the group of followers of Jesus, the, the learners of Jesus, out of that group, Jesus called 12 specifically to be with him. So picture it as like, you know, this concentric circle. Here's Jesus in the very center. There were the 12, they were the closest to him, but then there were the disciples, the followers of Jesus, who were out a little bit further. And and then there were the curious who would kind of come and go. If Jesus was in the area, they'd, you know, they'd go see him, they'd go hear him. He was more of a curiosity to them. And of course, on the farthest margins were his opponents, the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus is calling these twelve out of that group who had kind of been following him around. And when we get to Thomas, Thomas is chosen, and Thomas comes with all of his faith and all of his doubts, doesn't he? I mean, remember, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he's down there in Jericho, Lazarus is sick, he gets word down to Jesus, um, Jesus delays, and Lazarus dies, and then Jesus says, come on guys, we're going back up, Lazarus is asleep. And Thomas says what? Come on, let's go die with him. Thomas knew what the score was. He knew that the religious leaders were arrayed against Jesus, but he was willing to go and die with Jesus. Now that's not a man of doubt, is it? Yeah, but then you've got that whole business after the resurrection. And Thomas wasn't there with them that first night when Jesus appeared. And they went and they told Thomas. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see it for myself. Thomas was born in Missouri. That's the the show me state, you know. I'm not going to believe till I see it for myself. And we've labeled him as a man of doubt. But then... The next Sunday evening, when Jesus appears to them all in the upper room and Thomas is with them, Jesus says, hey Thomas, come here, take a look. Put your fingers in the hole, put your hand in my side. Don't be doubting any longer, but believe. And we don't have any record that Thomas did that, but instead we have the record that he falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. So Thomas was a fellow like a lot of us he's got strong faith most of the time 
And then he's got some doubts. But they're not permanent doubts. Because he's confronted with the truth. And he falls on his knees and he worships. You see, these guys, these guys are ordinary guys. We keep on going. We've got another fellow here named James. James, the son of Alphaeus. Sometimes he's called James the Younger or James the Less. That's the problem when you have more than one guy in a small group and they share the same name. You've got to distinguish them somehow. Some have said maybe it was actually James the Short. <laughs> I don't know if he was short or not, but anyway. We don't have a whole lot of information on him. It might be, based on Luke 16, chapter 1, that he was the son of one of the Marys, and there were more than one Mary back there, and more than one Mary in that little group of women who went to the tomb first. It might be that he was the son of one of those Marys who went to the tomb of Jesus. We don't know for sure. But, nevertheless, James was chosen by Jesus specifically to be a follower of Jesus. And not just a follower, but to be a disciple, eventually to be an apostle, one who would give testimony as to who Jesus was. Some of these guys we know a little bit more about, some we don't know very much about. But Jesus knew them, and He chose them for His purposes, regardless of what you or I might think. Now here's another interesting fellow, Simon, Simon the Zealot, or the Canaanite. Who in the world was this guy? Well, he was a member, apparently, of the group known as the Zealots. They were the political terrorists of Jesus' day. There were a group of hardcore Jewish fanaticists who wanted to get rid of Rome at any cost. And they, they pledged themselves to one another and that if they ever were in a position where there was a Roman who you know, was kind of vulnerable, they'd kill him. In fact, they even wore daggers under their outer garment so that if the opportunity to strike to make even just a single little blow against Rome and in favor of, of Israel, they would take it. Over here you've got Matthew, who's a Jew who sold out to Rome. Here you've got Simon, the zealot, a member of the radical political organization determined to get rid of Rome. Can, can you put those guys in a room together? Can you imagine what would happen? And Jesus chose one of each. Are you serious? And He did it after a whole night in prayer. Jesus is in the business of transforming lives it doesn't matter which end of the political spectrum you happen to be on you come into contact with jesus and he transforms your life and he calls you to be a follower not of political expediency not of political radicalism but to be a follower of truth to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To give your life. Not for some cause that will not last. But rather, to give your life for a person who has transformed your life. This is an amazing group of guys. I mean... I'm anxious to meet them. Eleven of them. One of them we won't meet. And that's Judas Iscariot who betrayed Him. 
all of these fellows saw the same things. They all basically experienced the same things. From this point on, they're going to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year with Jesus. In calling these 12 to himself, Jesus is taking on the role of a rabbi. You see, a, a, a rabbi in ancient Israel would be responsible for teaching, for proclaiming the Word of God, for educating those around him, and he would choose men who would have promise, who would be likely candidates to then carry on that rabbi's teaching to other people and long after the rabbi himself was dead. That was sort of the customary way of doing things. Paul, later on, will say to Timothy, Timothy, the things that you've seen and heard in me, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you've got Paul, you've got Timothy, his student, you've got the students of Timothy who learn from Timothy what he learned from Paul, who will then turn around and teach others also. You see that that kind of teaching mentality that permeates the New Testament. I'm, I'm wondering who your disciples are. Who are you teaching? You're teaching somebody. I hope you're teaching them well. There are people who are looking up to you, hoping to see in you something of Jesus, and, and I hope that you're, you're doing that. That's the calling of, that we have. That's the pattern that Jesus set up. And if right now you're thinking, oh man, I don't want that job. <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of where we ought to be because it means we have to depend upon the Lord to enable us to do that well. Jesus entrusted His message to clay pots. And some of them were cracked. <laughs> you know? And, and Jesus still does that today, doesn't He? He entrusts His message to you and me. We are weak, frail vessels. We are very imperfect vessels. Could an angel proclaim the Gospel a whole lot better than any pastor on the face of the earth? Absolutely. But God's not using angels. God's using us. God's using you and me. He's using us in the coffee shop, talking to people there. He's using us in the workplace, talking to people there. He's using us at school, talking to people there. He's using us, imperfect as we are, wherever we happen to be, to be His messengers. These guys were all chosen to be the messengers of Jesus Christ. But one of them, though he was chosen for a good purpose, turned out to be a bad egg, didn't he? Judas. Judas Iscariot. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. He had as much time invested uh, in, in his life as as the other disciples. He was with Jesus all that time, saw everything, heard everything. And yet, he became a traitor. Notice how it says there, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. You know, there are people today who look like they're following the Lord on the outside but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. What, what, what could possibly have gone into Judas's mind? How is it that he came to this place where he was willing to walk away from Jesus and betray Him to the chief priests so that He would be killed? I don't know that we can understand his mind, but maybe there's a few clues here and there. Judas 
became the treasurer of the group, which is a position of trust. But he proved to be untrustworthy because he used to pilfer a little bit every now and then. It wasn't maybe too much. Nobody really seemed to notice. In fact, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed and he says to Judas, go and do what you need to do, nobody got it. Nobody understood. When Jesus said to the whole group, Judas was still there, he says, one of you is going to betray me. They all, their mouths all drop open. They look around at each other. They look at the Lord and say, Lord, is it me? Nobody, nobody said, well, it's about time you figured it out, Jesus. Judas has been stealing from us the whole time. Oh, no, nobody pointed the finger at Judas. Nobody suspected Judas. He was a pretty good deceiver. He was untrustworthy. He was maybe looking at this as something that could benefit him in some way. I mean, if you're in good with a would-be king, when he becomes king, guess what? You're on the inside track. You, you're you're going to get some plum position, you know? Do people hang around politicians today hoping to get those political plums when the politician gets elected? I mean, let's figure Judas is probably no different than people today. He was hoping for some little plum once Jesus made good on all of His promises. But when it looked like the tables had turned and they were past that point of no return, that now the Romans are suspicious, the, the, politic, or the uh, religious leaders of Israel are suspicious, and they're, they're plotting actively to get rid of Jesus, and word is out on the street, we're going to deal with this guy. Judas is thinking, hmm... How can I get out of this? Save my own skin and get myself ingratiated with the ones who have been in power, who are still in power, and who are going to be in power once they've taken care of Jesus. How can I do that? Oh, I know. I'll turn Jesus over to them. And then they'll owe me and then I'll just have a nice life afterwards. The problem was Jesus, Judas wasn't considering his own soul. He wasn't considering his eternal destiny. He was thinking about the here and now. Maybe there's some here today. I mean, you're happy to hang around God. You're happy to hang around Jesus. You're happy to hang around the church and kind of look like you know you're you're in the in the group here and uh, and yet you're really only considered about yourself you're only considering your immediate needs you're only considering how you can line your own nest how you can take care of yourself oh beloved if that describes you you are in the wrong company because that was Judas. And when the moment came of decision, of action, of choice, Judas looked at Jesus, Judas looked at himself, and he says, I'm going to save my own life. I'm going to save my own neck. I'm going to turn Jesus in, and I'm going to save my... Jesus had a few things to say about that, didn't he? He who saves his own life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it, will keep it to everlasting life. Judas was confronted with a choice and he made the wrong choice. And so when he finally did betray Jesus, the guilt, the shame of it was so great that he went out and committed suicide. What a, what a tragedy. What a sad, sad thing. He was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle. But Judas rejected that calling of Jesus and lost 
everything. We'll see these guys in operation a lot more as we go through the, the Gospels, but let me just remind you of why He chose them. If you look at verse 14, He appointed twelve that they'll be with Him, that they might, He might send them out to preach. We're going to see Him doing that as we keep going. And to have power to see, heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. We're going to see that. They, they performed those sign miracles which authenticated their message. That what they were saying about Jesus was actually true. They were men whom God chose and equipped for tremendous acts of ministry and service. And they become foundational. Later on, I think it's in your notes there, if you want to flip over a few pages to John chapter 17. Jesus prays for these guys in John 17. He says, verse 5, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. He prayed for him that night. And God the Father gave him those twelve. They were, they, were, they were out of the world. And boy, some of them were in the world, weren't they? Political zealots, political sellouts. Just, I mean, they were, they were entrenched in the world. But you gave them to me out of the world. They were yours. God the Father knew them even before the foundation of the world, those men. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they've received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all are... all and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. These guys are going to be the foundation of the expansion and growth of the church. They're going to be instrumental in that. Look with me, please, in uh, Ephesians. Remember my verses here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 20. Paul is writing, we'll pick it up in verse 19. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's saying to these Ephesian believers, you're not on the outside anymore, you're on the inside because of your faith. Having been built, here it is, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone. God chose these men to be His apostles who would go out and proclaim the message of the Gospel and it is upon their testimony that the church, that the truth is, is resting. They're the foundation. I mean, Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. John, one of the disciples, wrote not only the Gospel of John, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. Luke was not an apostle, but he was an associate of the apostle Paul, who was an apostle, one born out of due time, but nevertheless specifically chosen and called by God and equipped by God. And Luke is keeping an accurate record of all that Paul has done and said and all those things. And Paul himself, 13 epistles from his hand in the New Testament. James. You know, it's just amazing. God used these men as the ones upon whom the church would be built. Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone 
is what determines all of the set of the building. And we don't have time to talk about ancient architecture. But it was the cornerstone that was the most important part of the building. Then it set the foundation. God has called these men, but one of them rejected. Beloved, God is calling you. You're here today. You're hearing this message. You're understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Messiah. You're understanding that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, that He's risen from the dead. You, you've, you've heard messages before out of this book. You're not here by accident. But you can be here futilely if you close your heart and harden your mind and turn and walk away. But don't do that. Don't be like Judas. Don't walk away from Jesus. Come to Him and be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's amazing what You've done with these guys. Just some ordinary fellows. And yet, Lord, You called them and You equipped them and You taught them and You entrusted this incredible message to them. And Lord, we're here today because of the faithfulness of those 11. Father, I pray that we will learn the lesson of Judas, one who was called to a place of responsibility and position and authority and, and relationship with You, but he never, he never turned to You. He never accepted that calling. Father, I pray that if there are any here today who are in the process of just hardening their hearts, oh, they've heard about Jesus, but they're just not moved. Oh, Lord. I pray that they will stop in their tracks and that they will turn to You and that they will give their lives to You hearing Your call and come to know Christ as their Savior. Thank you, Father, for your abundant mercy to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.